Hey, sports fans, how you doing? This is Dr. Armin Ho's Sports Psych MDs. You are now listening to episode six, Competitive Greatness. Competitive greatness is that aspect of athletes and that element of sports that keeps us coming back for more. It's the reason why we believe that some athletes have superhuman abilities. And so we want to explore that. We want, to, we want to understand more about how an athlete becomes great, what defines greatness. We're going to talk about John Wooden, the great basketball coach at UCLA's theory on greatness, and what goes into the development of competitive greatness. So fasten your seatbelts, y'all. Get ready for the next episode of Sports Psych MD's podcast. Do, do you feel me? me all right i mean do you really feel me here we are welcome what's up, welcome. What's up? um we're the sports like <laughs> we're the sports like mds and <laughs> this is the sports like mds podcast i'm tori <laughs> and i'm armin and this episode's about competitive greatness yeah we want to talk about what it means to be competitively great and um this is uh one of those topics that it, you know is bound to spark a little bit of controversy I mean, everybody kind of has their their own idea about, you know, who's great. Buddy who's a fan of whatever team. They're going to think that the best player on that team is definition of great. And it's it's true. I mean, really any professional athlete, you know, you make it to that level, uh, you're great. I mean, you're, you're, yeah. you've, you have proven that. You're in the 1%. You, yeah, you're, you're in the very, very top, the creme de la creme of your profession and, you know, whatever, whatever sport you play. But and, I think today um, we're, we want to talk about yeah. the elite of the elite. Yeah, no, exactly. What we're talking about, well, we're going to talk about what it means to be great in general. You know, we're, we're going to talk about that. But um, I think at some point we also want to kind of break down like Kobe Bryant detail style. Oof. We want to break down like what the elements of, of becoming great and specifically being at the very top, what those elements are, like what types of mental attributes go into being that kind yeah. of athlete. So what makes you, what are the attributes that make you competitively great? And then how do you develop those attributes? That's yeah. kind of what we're going to get into and how it relates to psychology and psychiatry. And competitive greatness, I think, I don't know who coined the term, but John Wooden, I think, I, I doing yeah. a little bit of research. Yeah, he's probably the first person he I that, recall. Uh, pyramid of success and competitive greatness was at the very tippity top. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, and if you're listening to this podcast, I'm, I'm assuming you do, John Wooden, legendary coach for UCLA. What, he win like 10 national championships? Oh, almost, no, Almost like in a row? Yeah. Um, yeah, he was the coach of uh, Lou Alcindor, mm. who eventually became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. Yeah, he's part of that run. Little did you know, I think he was competitively great himself. Not only as a coach, but as a player, he won a national title, supposedly, at Purdue University. But that's when they like voted on after the fact, so it doesn't really count. So, okay. Um, okay. But he, his definition of competitively great was, be at your best when your best is needed. Wow. Okay. He also said enjoyment of a difficult challenge. That's kind of his sentence of what competitive greatness is. Be at your best when your best is needed. Okay. Pretty simple. Yeah. So, and, and that's, yeah, it, 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 but it's, I think it sounds more simple than it may actually be. Oh, his pyramid of success has about 15 building blocks that lead up to being competitively great. So it's okay. a lot more complicated. Yeah. Um, and we're going to try like to boil that, that down today. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. Like being great when called upon, like being able to kind of tap into that part of you that is the best part of you. Yes. But being able to control if and when that happens mm -hmm. being and able, how that happens. Yeah. Yeah, being able to bring that out when you, when you face, when the going gets tough, when right. you face adversity, being able to rise to the occasion. Rise to the occasion, yeah. And then that second part, that second part's interesting too. It fits so, with it, I think. Yeah, no, it, 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 exactly. It fits. It, it complements it really well. It's you rise to the occasion and it's embracing mm -hmm. the moment, right? Embracing the challenge, not shying away. Yeah. I mean, 
it's sort of so this recognition of the fact that hey, this is a this is not like a normal situation, yep. not a normal circumstance. This is this is different. This you're is thriving. You you get excited. You're but enthusiastic. You're, excited. You, right. you're like, give me the ball. This is my time. Yep. It's almost like this is we're talking about the clutch gene, essentially, if you will. Yeah. A lot of people throw that around. Who has the clutch gene? Who's yeah. clutch? Yeah. Um, Who embraces the moment. Yeah. So some of the things I think Armin and I look at when we think competitive greatness, we're not going to talk about all 15 building blocks that Coach Wooden talked about, but I like to think about it as you have to have the skill and the talent first off. Your best has to be good enough to get you to that point. Brian Scalabrini, as good as he was in basketball, he got, I'm <laughs> sure he had a scholarship. Some, I didn't know where he played in college. Anyways, he played in the pros for quite some time. But at his best, he's not a number one guy. He's not going to lead a team to the NBA Finals and have that opportunity to hit that game-winning shot in the last few seconds of Game 7. Sure, sure, sure. But see, Brian, even Brian Scalabrini, probably at the middle school level or oh, maybe even high school level, probably was college the best player too. On, on his team. Yeah. Maybe even college, yeah. I mean, I mean he, he may have the clutch gene. This is where I think competitive greatness and, and clutch gene may be different. Because you could have the clutch gene, but you, maybe you don't have that much talent, but you're still, at the end of the game, you're playing at your best. Yeah. So maybe in a sense that is competitive greatness, but I think how w- we both see it is like Mount Rushmore, the top of the food chain. We're talking sure. like Michael Jordan. Like those guys. We're talking Tom so, Brady. So, so Yeah, exactly. So tell me, what are the, the essential ingredients so to be one of those guys? Talent and skill, like okay. we talked about. And... So raw talent, mm-hmm. raw skill, superior yeah. talent. Mm-hmm. Okay. To your peers. Right. And that's key, right? So mm-hmm. by comparison to the You're playing, playing fields. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you can be you can probably break it down by like, all right, this kid in middle school is competitively great. This kid in high school is competitively great. This kid in college is, and then in the pros. So you can pr- probably define it at each stage, at I each would stage. say. Okay. And then the second one would be confidence or how, in a, I guess, in a more of a psychology lens, you could say a strong sense of self or st- mm. having a strong identity. Okay. And we'll get into a little bit more of what that means. But yeah. it has a lot to do with, from that, you can develop a lot more. From that, you have resilience. You have resilience. And, and you know, one of the other reasons why confidence is important is because in order to be great, you also have to kind of be a leader, right? I mean, you're not necessarily always the leader, but you have to have some leadership skills because you you have to be willing to accept a burden, you know, a challenge on behalf oh, yeah. of others, you know, on the team. Yeah, especially in a team sport, like your teammates are going to rely on you and you have to be able to shoulder that, that yeah. burden. And, and, and how are you going to do that if you're not confident, right? Because mm-hmm. people that are not confident like to project. They don't want to necessarily take on the burden. They want to give it off to somebody else. That's really what we're talking about. People project or displace, right? So, you know, projection is going to come when you're trying to sort of compensate for something, right? So I might project if I, I feel the need to let people know how great I am, right? Now, why would I need to let people know how great I am if I know that I'm great, you know, yeah. if, and, and if I know that I'm great, it's, it's, it's going to reflect in my, in my play. Mm-hmm. And obviously if I'm considered the best player on the team, other people believe that I'm great too. Yeah. So, you know, it would be unnecessary to, to project if I'm, if I'm highly confident, I might displace if I'm uncomfortable with taking on challenge and responsibility especially when it's challenge or responsibility that could make me feel nervous. Yeah, you the know? classic example would be you, you fuck up on a play, you go to the bench and you yell at your teammate for something random. Right. And you displace your frustration towards your own mistakes onto a teammate. Yeah. Projection, on the other hand, is a little bit more complicated. It's something we call a narcissistic defense mechanism. We, we all use it, but um, it's more often used by individuals with fragile egos, those who, who can't take ownership of unwanted thoughts and unwanted feelings to the point where they have to project them onto other people. A good example would be, I feel inadequate or I feel worthless. So when I get around people, I, I tell them that they're worthless. You're inadequate. You're worthless, even though I feel this way. If you were to talk about it in terms of sports, imagine someone getting picked for a team and they go into that and they're like, no one wants me to be on their team. In reality, they're projecting the fact that they don't think they're good enough. And another way to think of it is, 
if anyone in your life ever says something kind of mean to you out of nowhere for no reason, curses you out or whatever, most likely they're trying to get you to feel what they're feeling in the moment. They're trying to project their feelings onto you. It's complicated though. Yeah, no, it is It is difficult. But the, the reality is that great players don't really have to fall into those traps. You no, know? Because these are all defense mechanisms, but I think you're right. Great players with a strong sense of self, they don't have to use these defense mechanisms. They don't. And you see it in the interviews. Like I'm actually one of these guys. I I like to listen to the post-game interviews. I like to kind of see how the the, the players feeling in the immediate aftermath of of that competitive event because it it does sometimes kind of speak a little bit to their character and their mindset. And what I see consistently with the greats is they, you know, are saying things like, hey, it's on me. I should have been better. We're going to be better. So they're Um, taking responsibility. They're taking responsibility. You know, they're saying things like, hey, this team, we've been working hard. You know, we're going to continue to work hard and play hard. We're going to continue to, to build. You know, they're, they're like the ambassador. Yeah, you know? they can take on that burden because exactly. they, they have a strong sense of self. Yeah, that's it. And what I also see and I think is a, a trait for a lot of these competitively great players is they, when they break down the game, they, they almost take the emotion out of it to a sense where it's very analytical. They'll break it down play by play. They'll, they'll give you very specific things. LeBron James actually does a fairly good job at this. He's got a pretty damn good memory, first off, but he'll break it down play by play and tell you certain mistakes and different things. He does other things not quite as good as that. but mm-hmm. And we'll get into like emotionality and how that factors into being competitively great. Um, but the next thing I wanted to talk about too, and we'll dive into all these things, is that competitive drive. Mm, that is, is the kind of the other thing that you have to have to be competitive. That third great. layer to the trifecta. I mean, it's in the word competitive greatness, but yeah. that kind of linear focus, that drive to be the best player that you can be yep. and to beat everyone in your path. And I think this is where it gets complicated because you can have someone who wants to set out to beat everyone and be better than everyone, or you have someone who wants to set out to be the best that they can be. Mm-hmm. They want to, they're only competing essentially with themselves. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, the will to win, you know, yeah. it, 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 it's the will to win. It's the will to to not just win, but to do all the things that are necessary mm-hmm. to put yourself in that position, yeah. you know, all the preparation. Yep, the, know, those 10,000 hours that they say that you have to put in to be a professional at something or to perfect something. Preparation, yeah. preparation, preparation. Yeah, You develop even more confidence and an even stronger sense of self. And you develop that muscle memory too, right? At the end of the game, you don't even have to really think it. You just do it. So as long as you put your emotions out of the way, your body knows what to do in these situations. Mm-hmm. That's right. But that, I think that's one of the main reasons, speaking of emotions, that why the clutch gene and being clutch and being competitively great while they, well, they always show the statistics about game-winning shots and how, what's your shooting percent, percentage in the last 25 seconds. That's been going around about Steph Curry because now he's, what, 0 for 7 or 0 for 9? in the last 25 seconds on go-ahead field goals in the NBA playoffs. That's right. And you think of Steph Curry on the surface, you're like, yeah, he's competitively great. And I, I, I do believe he's competitively great because he, he has performed at a high level and throughout the playoffs for for many years. I mean, he's made the finals he's a five, five years I mean, in a row. He's a champion. He's, it's, so it's almost, said, he's, it's almost he's like we're split. Before level. you get in, because I know you're going to challenge me on this, but <laughs> I think we're splitting hairs a little bit when we... Because you can always bring it oh the last 25 seconds the last minute the last two minutes you can always change it how much more pressure is there in the last 25 seconds of game three in the nba finals versus any nba finals game i would yeah I, I'm, I'm sure there is more pressure towards the end of the game but all seven games in the nba finals are it's high pressure high stakes yeah well one i think one big difference especially for a guy like like a curry um, in the in the waning moments of the game is that there's not as much time. It's 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 more about just your your will, your you know your wits. I think a guy like Curry becomes a guy like Curry because of his preparation. He prepares better than everyone else. We, he puts it on display before every game. You know he has a very kind of ritualistic way of preparing. He's perfected his shot and. 
you know, a lot of what happens with him in terms of his success is about flow, this process that he's managed to, to put together and, and put on display on the floor. But in order for him to do what he does, it's a lot of it's like kind of wizardry out there. You know, he has to have certain spacing on the floor that's oftentimes created by his teammates. You know, he has to be put in certain positions. He has to be able to move around. He sort of like conjures up energy as he's moving around the floor. And then, you know, he'll get the ball in the right spot and, you know, boom. That's when when he does have the ball in his hands. When he does have the ball in his hands, you know, a lot of it's about, you know, his ability to dribble, dribble drive and, you know, kind of escapability. And and all these things, you know, to me necessitate that he is in control of the clock and control of the kind of the dynamics of the game. In the waning moments of the game, it's just total chaos out there. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? There's not, all the preparation in the world isn't going to help you in those. It's just, you know, who wants it more? Um, you know, a lot of it really probably comes down to endurance. I think endurance, I think, know. is the main thing. Because I think he has ice in his veins. I think if we measured his heart rate, it'd be sure. pretty consistent throughout the game. Yeah. But I do think your the endurance factor, he runs around so much, like you said, and he's not... I mean, he's compared to us. He's a big guy, six three, yeah. but out there, he's a frail guy, and he's getting chased, and they're throwing multiple guys, bigger guys at him. Um, he's getting beat up, and I think at the end of the game, he's he's a little tired, a little worn down, and I think that's the reason for the lack of similar numbers to the beginning of the game. Absolutely, um, and not necessarily due to maybe he gets a little nervous or anxious or yeah, he that lacks may not that be, competitive greenness. It, it may not necessarily be that, but you know, nervousness is not something that anyone's immune from. And I think that there cannot, can potentially be like an anxiety that develops within him when he is not able to have the flow that he's used to having. Yeah. You know, he, and the floor he, dynamics. He's rushed. That he's, exactly. His shot is rushed when he's getting, when people are kind of putting the body, getting, muscling him a little yeah. bit. And, you, you mentioned know, that flow. It's like, uncomfortable. That flow, like and that preparation leads to muscle memory, and that, that's his flow. That's kind mm-hmm. of like the flow. You have this, you've been doing this over and over again all your whole life. You get in this flow, you come off a screen, catch, shoot, yeah. and then you get pushed out of that flow, and it becomes chaotic, and how do you react from that? He has yeah. to then in turn, maybe he does have to think a little bit more about how to create his shot in those last few minutes. And anytime you're thinking more than you normally would above your baseline, you're overthinking and you're going to be more likely probably to miss. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just a little bit of tension. We don't even have to call it anxiety. No, because it might not even be. Anxiety is pathological state. Maybe it's just overthinking, as you put it, you know, And and that's sort of like a tension that develops that throws off that balance just a little bit, right? And just one other thing I wanted to touch on when we're talking about this competitive drive, the thing with competitive drive that I think is interesting, it speaks to a passion and it speaks to this other layer of what it means to be great and what I think is essential for greatness at your respective level is that you have a love for that sport, you know, a love for that. I think it go, almost goes beyond love. Yeah, you know what I mean? But it, yeah. it's, and what, I, and what I say, I use that term because in you put so much into it. You know, there's so much that goes into, again, the preparation and the competition that it has to be a positively re- rewarding experience, right? It has to be a positively reinforcing oh, yeah. experience. Because we're not really going to truly, as, as human beings, the way we're wired, we're not really going to get into something and make it part of our practice and become better and better and develop greatness unless we're passionate about it, unless we, it is a positively reinforcing experience. And it's kind of like being addicted to drugs. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't, people don't, don't do drugs because they hate the way it feels. Mm-hmm. You know, they... They love the way it oh, makes yeah. them feel. And, you know, whether it's taking pain away or whatever it's doing or whether it's creating that eu- euphoria, there's something that keeps calling them back. Yeah. That's how an addiction really becomes reinforced. And 
I think in order to become competitively great, it has to be like an addiction. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up, that positive reinforcement. Go back to childhood. If you remember your first memories and your interactions with your family or, or, or relatives or whoever, as a kid, you kind of you want that validation from your parents. A lot of people do. So a lot of times parents will get their kids into sports or different activities. And let's say you play Little League Baseball and you, ha- you hit a double. And you see, see people cheering and you go on the sideline. Maybe your dad's your coach. He's giving you a high five because you did good. You hit a home run or a double um, or you made the three-point basket. I don't know if you're hitting many threes at like six years old, but <laughs> that feels good. And it wasn't if you're Steph Curry, it wasn't probably. necessarily hitting the double or shooting, making the three point basket, but it was the cheering right. from your family, the high five from your dad, the embrace from your mom. That feels even better. And what do you do? You connect hitting that double. You connect hitting that three pointer with that feeling of being embraced by your parents. That's right. And getting that that validation, that gratification, getting them to cheer you on. So you connect those two things. So you become conditioned to realize, oh, if I if I get a bunch of base hits, if I'm good at baseball, I'm going to get more validation and recognition from my family, and that mm-hmm. feels good. Yep. So it's almost, to at a certain point, the baseball doesn't even really matter. You're just, as a, at a young age, you're almost just seeking that validation, that gratification, that recognition from your parents. You can substitute baseball for math. Say you got an A on a math test, your dad's embracing you, high-fiving you. Well, well, awesome. You're, you're doing great, son. Keep doing it. Then you're going to want to be really good at math, and maybe you'll become a mathematician. That's right. That's or an right. engineer or something. So yeah. these seeds are planted. What I'm trying to get at is these seeds are planted very young. You get this psychological conditioning, but there's also what you mentioned, the biological drives as well. Mm-hmm. So you're feeding that emotional center in your brain, that right. reward center, the amygdala, where when you get that gratification from your parents, you get an embrace from your mom some dopamine starting to be produced in your amygdala and your brain and that feels good and you want that and that refines that reward circuit. That's right. So it's all intertwined um, and the seeds are planted young. Yeah, and as you outgrow, you know, your 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 parents, you know, your dad, you know, throwing ball in the backyard or whatever, then it becomes the positive reinforcement of coaching staff. I'm sure at the professional level it's like especially the great players, it's your fans. Yep. Yep, and yeah. it's the the money, the fame, the everything money, that comes with it. The fame, yep. But this is when I think a lot of players may get into trouble. At some point, you have to that that competitive drive has to come from within. I th- mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. ultimately, in order to become competitively great, the best of the best, to have it all, to be on the Mount Rushmore, your chances are better at doing that when the motivation, that source of gratification, that source of validation comes from within. That's right. From a strong sense of self. Because just think about it. If you're outsourcing your validation to others, then you're, it's going to be less reliable. And we talk, I think we already ta- mentioned this in other podcasts, but obviously with social media coming to light, I know there's been a lot of talk from the, what they call the old heads like Charles Barkley with these new, new even like Jimmy Butler with these new age players coming. Anyone essentially that's been tw- is 25 years or younger grew up with s- smartphones and social media at their fingertips from middle school, high school on. So they've been, they're more susceptible to that external validation because they've been, and you com- combine that with like playing a- in AAU and, and you're being spotlighted since you're, even before high school, y- your highlight tapes are getting put on social media and people are commenting and liking and you have people from all over the world praising you on your abilities. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we see a lot of these players come into the league and not necessarily be as successful as we originally thought, at least early on, because maybe their source the source of their drive, their source of their motivation is tied in with that external validation. They're That's wanting, right. they've been carried along so long by their fans, they get to the NBA, everyone's just as good as them, they face a little bit of adversity, and then where do they turn? Like, where's that motivation go? Maybe now they're just, they're going to get more into fashion, mm-hmm. or they're yeah. going to be more of a presence on social media. Maybe they're going to get more into rapping or do other different different things, because maybe they're not they're not getting as much praises that they, they would like That's in the right. NBA, and they don't know, then their, def, their way to defend against that is to find different a- avenues. Yeah, this absolutely. Is, and I have, uh, this is kind of a theory of mine, just 
and trying to work on it. But I know we've talked about it before. We have, yeah, definitely. It, it's fascinating to me to see how like you have all these so-called experts trying to determine when players are coming out of college at the amateur level, which guy is going to be the best, like which guy is going to be the number one player in the draft. Right now it's going to be it's Zion Williams. That's yeah, all the talk. That's what everybody's saying. And, I mean, who knows, right? Uh, you know, I mean, if you think about it, there have been for decades now we've had NBA drafts. And, you know, therefore we've had dozens of number one picks. And I'm pretty sure that not all of them have become like NBA MVPs or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. And you got dudes that are just like, they don't even last that more same, than a couple of years. Same draft. I think Giannis was taken like pick 17. Although isn't, that, isn't that crazy? Uh, Kwame Brown's one that just stands out for me. I, he I had mean, tiny hands though. I mean, whatever you want to call it, man, it, it just, they, you know, I, 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 he, there was so much, there was a lot, there wasn't nearly as much hype around him as like Zion or, or LeBron, but I mean, there was a, there was a pretty good amount of hype, you know, and at the time is when players were, you know, coming straight out of high school mm-hmm. and this dude was massive, you know, I mean, he had like, you know, sort of LeBron like girth and that, that kind of a man's body. Mm-hmm coming straight into the league at, you know, 18 years old, and he was a seven-footer. And you're thinking, oh, my God, guy's going to dominate. And he seemed to have the footwork. He seemed to have all the skills. What he was really lacking, we eventually d- discovered, was confidence. Yep. And I think what we're trying to get at is where does that come from? That comes from a lack of sense of self. He didn't really know who he was. And we can kind of speculate. I don't know his history, but maybe he was – playing basketball for the wrong reasons. He didn't have the right source of motivation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, people like to put, oh, his hands were small. But, yeah, I think I think the confidence for sure. And we could probably go through and name countless players. The NBA is in itself, like I mentioned before, you have to have a certain skill set and talent. Like the average height in the NBA is like 6'7". Like, wow. And yeah. there's no shot I would ever made the NBA just based off my height. I think there's a couple players in the league my size, but you have to kind of, you have to be able to get in the door with your, your skills. And then you have to have that strong sense of self and you have to have that competitive drive. Yeah. There've only been a few, uh, quote unquote, uh, short players that have really become what one would consider like great NBA. Great. Allen Iverson is one that just really stands out. I mean, he's, probably one of the best ever. Um, and I think th- these are good examples because these guys are already behind the eight ball. You know, they have yeah. to put in, they have to almost have an edge when it comes, since they lack the talent or the size in this situation, yeah. they have to have an edge in, when it comes to confidence and they have to have an edge when it comes to competitive drive. Yeah, they have to. Yeah, they don't have the natural ability yeah. So they have to. Make I mean, up for I mean, Alan Iverson had all the talent in the world, but we're talking strictly his size was yeah. a, a disadvantage. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you go through the list. You got AI, Alan Iverson. You got Avery Johnson, Damon Stoudemire, Spud Webb, Muggsy Bogues, Nate Robinson, DJ Augustine, Kemba Walker. He's about Isaiah to sign a Thomas. fat contract. Is this the original Isaiah Thomas? Shot no, or? this is the the newer one. He's short. Yeah, he's super <laughs> short. Well, when I say you what, the original Isaiah Thomas was a He wasn't boss. too tall either. And he was, I'm pretty sure, I think Who's he might have been less than, than, I think he was under he 60. He was right around that. Or right around the Mendoza there. Mendoza line. But he's great. Uh, but the, what about this guy, Kyler Murray? Oh, man, NFL, they're starting to change their, the name of the game now. Yeah, quarterback. The, the, the recent Heisman Trophy Five nine went number one overall I could have played NFL quarterback, man. <laughs> No, it's. I mean, honestly, it's it's inspi- it's an inspiration. Yeah, I mean, it is. So that's pretty incredible. I mean, especially because if you think about traditionally speaking, NFL quarterback grades. I mean, they've all been pretty big dudes. Well, let's you know? jump in and talk about some. Of, like, he's still playing today. You want to talk about him? He's six five. Yeah, I mean Brady. Six you know, four. Obviously, going back, you got Manning. Uh, six five. You know, laser rocket arm. Going, you know, further back, you got. Joe Montana, John Montana, Elway. Aikman, Elway. Your prototypical pocket passers standing I mean, big and bulky in the pocket. Aaron Rodgers is not particularly tall. He's a hybrid. He's a hybrid. And then you got 
guys like Russell Wilson. We got the new age, Drew Brees, you know, Baker Mayfield. Drew Brees. Yeah, so I think They're it's just an evolution. You know, what's interesting is like, so with football, it's, it's, it's different, right? Because so with basketball, your target is it's a height from the ground. So obviously height's going to be important. But it's more of a three-dimensional landscape in perspective in, in football. And there actually is some advantage to, I mean, traditionally, you know, it was about the quarterback being able to see over the offensive and defensive line. And most offensive right? defensive linemen, 6'6 six, six plus. They're big guys, and they've gotten bigger. They're, they're getting taller, yeah. and so now they're starting to get taller in the quarterback. Well, they're getting more mobile, too. And they're more mobile. And so what actually seems to be advantageous is the ability, because the other guys you know, are so more, much more mobile, is for the quarterback to be more mobile. Right, because these guys are man. They're not giving these these guys these yeah. quarterbacks any time to drop back anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and so a, and they're so fast, and their escapability is, is pretty important. In, so in this NFL. is it's like a, ch- a changing of the guard and evolution of the game where swinging it back to competitive. Well, these these quarterbacks that are ma- becoming quarterbacks in the NFL, they're competitively great, right? Yeah. And now that height is becoming less of an issue, this is allowing more opportunity for these actual competitively great quarterbacks to come in the league because all these quarterbacks we just mentioned, Russell Wilson, Drew Brees, um, Kyler Murray, Baker Mayfield, extremely, extremely successful in college. Mm -hmm. They were getting to BCS championship bowls. Drew Brees went to the Rose Bowl. Russell Wilson went to a Big Ten championship. Kyler Murray won the Heisman. Baker Mayfield won the Heisman. Drew Brees was in the Heisman running as well. These Johnny Menzel. Johnny Menzel. I mean, <laughs> he was another gotta, shorter guy. Got to talk about Kind of flamed out a little bit, but... Johnny football. They're, they're actually putting more stock into these guys that have been competitive, shown flashes of competitive greatness within college versus just drafting someone based off their, their size and their quote-unquote potential. They're drafting the competitively great players. So... Confidence, baby. I wanna, before we jump into a couple more examples of these legends... Did want to talk about, and this is going to be a little controversial. I wanted to talk about this this overwhelming competitive drive that some of these all time greats have, these Mount Rushmore players have, mm. that almost borders on the level of like narcissism, extremely selfish, um, to the point where you've heard stories about players like Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, these these greats that don't maybe not don't have the best relationships off the court with regards to. Spouses or different things, mm-hmm. um, or made some mistakes. Friends, yeah. um, friends, different things. Kobe Bryant had that saying that friends hang sometimes, banners hang forever. <laughs> so it just goes to show what his priorities are, right? Yeah. So I think there there's something about being competitively great, having that quote unquote clutch gene, in its relation to sociopathy or psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Its relation to being a psychopath. Are these Mount Rushmore players? Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady, guys like this, are they psychopaths? They they are not psychopaths, but they are psychopathic. Okay. Right? So so they share a lot of they, characteristics. They have some of those characteristics for sure. And and it is in fact those characteristics that are a part of what makes them great. One of the things that characterizes sociopathy is this kind of uh, apathy if you will, it's, it's a pathological apathy for someone who's sociopathic. Um, kind of like a that, lack of remorse? In that, yeah, it's sort of like, an, well, it's not just a lack of remorse. Lack of remorse is part of it, but it's, it's just an inability to really be influenced by affect and emotion, you know? So that's important, you know, because, you know, com- competition is emotional. It's yeah. the emotional experience is highs and lows. And like we talked about earlier with Steph Curry, you know, when it's the winning moments of the game and he has to kind of Things get tense. Things get tense. Things get tight. Emotions rise. Yeah. And, and those changes, if you allow yourself to be moved by them. Well, let's you know. first talk about the physiological changes in the body. When the last seconds of the game, this happened to me when I stepped on the baseball diamond, but... yeah. Heart rate goes up. Heart rate goes up. 
when you feel that tension, muscles get tense. That's right. Could be a little shakiness, although we probably aren't going to see that, but definitely can see spikes in the heart rate. Yes. Heart rate variability is yeah. definitely a huge thing. I'd love to get a heart rate monitor on these guys at some oh, point. Oh, yeah. You'll get skin moisture mm-hmm. will begin yeah. to increase. Yeah. Um, you get maybe a little bit of tremulousness in the fingertips mm-hmm. where our nerve endings and you know beta 2 receptors sit. Um, maybe a little chest tightness. Chest tightness, absolutely. General muscle tightness and increased ventilation and respiratory rate. Temperature may rise a bit. Mm. So yeah. all these little changes, even like even like the temperature change or maybe a five-point increase in your heart rate, those can have drastic effects on your muscle memory, on your ability to do what you've been doing your whole, your whole entire life. Mm-hmm. It could affect it just enough so instead of hitting that Kawhi Leonard game seven triple bounce off the rim mm-hmm, mm-hmm. game winner against Philadelphia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He could have totally airballed it or bricked it. it it's right. the, it's a, and like the cliche saying is it's a game of inches. inches. That's football, That's right. but it can be pronounced can be anything. Any so sport. these small physical changes can have drastic effects. And then not to mention when you become maybe aware of these physical changes, what do you then have? Then you can have anxiety. Or you it can you can overthink things, mm-hmm. or you overthink things, and that leads to the physical symptoms. That's exactly. a cycle. And, and going back to earlier podcast things we've talked about, mind and body connection. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it's very difficult to have a, a psychological experience that doesn't manifest itself in some way to your body, right? To your, the performance of that task. Yeah. So relating this back to psychopathy, and the reason why we think that maybe these all-time great athletes share characteristics of psychopaths is because psychopaths have low emotional reactivity. That's right. If you look at a brain scan of someone with with a psychopath, frankly, um, we like to call them antisocial personality. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite the same thing. But you look at that amygdala, like I talked about, that reward center, the emotions. Mm-hmm. That's where your emotions center in. Yep. That's less reactive in someone with psychopathy. Yeah. So, no, it is. If you were to do like a functional MRI mm-hmm. study in a normal amygdala, you'll see that individual who's hooked up to that MRI is maybe you, sh- you flash a picture of like, you know, something that should, you know, should excite them, mm-hmm. right? Something that should excite emotion. Maybe it's a picture. Maybe it's a picture of like two really cute puppies playing. Yeah. Maybe right? it's a picture of someone skydiving. Maybe it's or, a picture yeah, of something blood. Or, yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, any of those things that should evoke emotion, you'll see that the area that we call the amygdala is going to light up on the, on, the, on the functional MRI study. And by lighting up, it means that there's more activity, mm-hmm. right? There's more electrical activity happening, which means there's more nerves firing mm-hmm. in the amygdala. If you were to, to show that same photo to someone with, Sociopathy. Or someone with competitive greatness. Or probably someone with competitive greatness. I would love to do these studies. Um, What you'll find is much less activity in the amygdala when they see those images when compared to that uh, that person, that normal normal person. How do you think uh, Chris Paul's amygdala lights up when you show him like... Game seven of Western <laughs> Conference Finals. Yeah, that's probably going to have the opposite. Oh, right? it's going to be gonna, the whole thing's going to yeah, light up. Just, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, some of us are are actually even more prone to anxiety when we're in those situations than the normal person yeah. would be. So this activity in the amygdala is pretty much the trigger zone for anxiety and the, these physical symptoms. So that's why looking at it is so interesting and neat for us psychiatrists um, because it kind of shows you the origins of of emotion and we can see that on a brain scan even and this may be completely out of the awareness of the individuals Mm -hmm. um, but it's the seed for anxiety so sociopaths not only have low emotional reactivity they've been known to disregard others emotions because of this yeah so they like empathy Mm -hmm. empathy is a very important characteristic um you know for Essentially, understanding the experience and being being able to connect with the experience of others. Yeah, you know. So if you do something to upset someone else or or to harm someone else, 
you understand that you feel bad mm-hmm. you know you have remorse so that prevents you from prevents you being from being a dickhead exactly um, and you know compels you to make amends mm-hmm. right so um, what we see in you know guys like Kobe Bryant as you mentioned earlier Michael Jordan um, there are many others you notice that they the way they perform on the court the way they compete they're not really caught up in the in the emotion. What do you think, Mamba the mentality? They're not really caught up in the moment. Killer instinct. The way that others on the court are, it, it, there's a clear difference. Where others are, for instance, getting you know, wrapped up in you know what the the refs are calling and getting wrapped up in you know what some fan said or what some other players said or you know. No, yeah. there, there's none of that with these guys. They are laser focused, and they they they're really only concerned about one thing. Yep, yep. And, and that's a, a lot of times, this, this correlates to being narcissistic or, or being everything centered around you. Yeah, it all kind of goes together. And when we're talking about some of these guys, we're talking about like these really high functioning psychopaths. Believe it or not, a lot of CEOs of major companies share a lot of these characteristics. Some well, some would it. say certain presidents share some of these characteristics. Oh, I believe that too. But there's a reason these traits are still in our gene pool because a lot of these characteristics can be successful for certain intelligent individuals because it, prov- it, it creates a selfishness, this lack of empathy for other, others. So you're going to strive for success for yourself to build up your ego and you don't care about the collateral damage. And that sometimes is beneficial, um, especially if you're, you're talking about a capitalistic society, you can definitely become a successful CEO. Um, and then, so the question is, a lot of people, is there a difference between sociopathy and psychopathy? Is a so- psychopath born and a, and a sociopath made by the environment? What, what are your thoughts? Um, I think you, know, you start with a genetic predisposition. And it doesn't yeah. mean that your dad has it or your mom has it or your grandfather or your great uncle or what have you. Um, there's certain traits. I'm but, sure you can pick out someone yeah. in your family that has a, shows a little less empathy than the, than the next person. Exactly. Just predisposition. And then I think we've, we've talked about in previous episodes, the impact of early development. And you know, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Sometimes that can go wrong. As a child, a budding yeah. child psychiatrist, I, yeah. I, I love getting into the early development. So, how can we foster competitive greatness? How can we allow our children to develop these traits to possibly become competitively great? So there's some psychological principles that, like you mentioned, nature versus nurture. There's so many different mixtures and recipes you can put together to create someone that's competitively great. But something to develop a strong sense of self, strong sense of identity, confidence. Um, there's certain things that we know that can help with that, and that would be stability growing up. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, that holding environment. Donald Winnicott that talked about the holding environment? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. So this is essentially a supporting environment at home that allows you to go out in the world, face all these different challenges, stressors, maybe get your ass kicked sometimes, maybe get humbled sometimes. Sure. But you not? have the confidence to know that I can go back home yep. to the safety of my holding environment yep. and put all my worries and fears aside because I'm home, I'm safe, I'm loved. And that you can develop a lot of confidence through through that. Just think about like nowadays, getting home from work, you come home, you, you get on your couch, you kick your feet up, take your shoes off, maybe you have an adult beverage or two, and the stress just kind of dissipates. It's kind of like that, but times a thousand. Um, so I want to be clear, you're still going out in the real world and facing real life challenges and you're playing football, maybe you break your arm or, or you do poorly on a test or someone's better than you. Your parents aren't lawnmower parents. They're not destroying all obstacles so you can be successful. They're allowing you to fail, essentially, knowing that you can come back home and have the safety of your own home to learn from your mistakes and learn from your failures and get better. So I think having that proper holding environment can foster a strong sense of self and identity. And then Donald Winnicott also had what he called the good enough mother, Right. which kind of speaks to this. The good enough mother, or nowadays you can call it the good enough father, but the good enough mother does just enough to allow their baby to grow, to develop, to learn. Uh, obviously, the mom carries the baby for nine months, and then when it's born, you do everything for the baby. You feed the baby, you're, you transport the baby, you do everything. And eventually, as the baby grows and develops and can, can do more on their own, you ask them to do more on their own. 
So you pull away a little bit. And sometimes you pull away enough so the baby will fail or you fail to meet the baby's needs and then the baby has to, in turn, develop a new skill, learn something new, defend on its own. And that's what the good enough mother is. So these are a couple of things I wanted to highlight a little bit. Donnie Winnicott, I'll call him that. This, mm-hmm. this is, all came out in the 1950s, so it's been there for a while. These yeah. are just theories, but they make sense. They make a lot of sense. Right? And, and yeah, and these are all really important characteristics of the environment, you know, that nurturing environment that are essential ingredients for the development of greatness. And I think while we talk about the nurture in the environment, we also have to talk about the nature, right? We have to talk about the nature because just as you can have bad genes, like in the case of sociopathy, you can also inherit great genes that will kind of lay the building blocks for what eventually can become a sort of structure of greatness, if you will. So I think the resilience factors, this notion of resilience, and and what's interesting about this notion of resilience, and we're going to talk about some examples of this, is that when you have resilience, it enables you to withstand not only the the pressures of being a great athlete and, and having to compete at the highest level, but also when you when you lack that nurturing and supportive environment, mm-hmm. right? It enables you to still push through in yep. order to achieve that potential. Yep. Yeah, and the resilience can't you can be born with it, you can develop it based off your environment as well. Yeah. Like you said, I don't want to call if you're born with bad genes, but I want to say certain people just they have to fight through a lot more than others. Even from day one, their genetics, maybe you're you have intergenerational trauma that's passed on through epigenetics from your mom or from your dad to you through your genes. So you're already coming out of the womb a little more hypersensitive to threat. Mm, um, yep. Your amygdala is a little bit more hypersensitive, yeah. a little bit more hyperactive. Uh, maybe you're born with that way. And then you continue to develop and maybe you overcome that. Or maybe you're born with with what you said, these 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 resilient genes, but then over, you, you're born into this environment where you're suffering trauma after trauma. That's right. Domestic violence, sexual abuse, uh, gun violence, you name it, um, school shootings. And over time, no matter how much resilience you have... Social media bullying? It could be a small social media bullying. It, yeah. I don't want to say small. It could be everyone has their own experiences that can cause trauma essentially. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's a a spectrum, but these can also cause those. At a young enough age can also cause these changes in your amygdala and your limbic system and have you respond to threat differently. That's what PTSD is, Mm -hmm. post-traumatic stress disorder. That's right. Acute stress disorder. There's, it doesn't even have to reach the threshold for PTSD in order to have these kind of biological changes and causing you to kind of respond to threat differently. So that means you're going to be more emotionally reactive which may mean you're not going to, you don't have the clutch gene. And when it gets in those clutch moments and there's a little bit more emotions involved, your emotions are going to kind of be on a roller coaster ride. And that's going to lead to more variability and less consistency and less muscle memory. And you're going to miss the shot or you're going to strike out or you're going to drop the big catch in the Super Bowl. Maybe, maybe not. You know, you're right. You're right, though. Um, It's it's a balance of forces. Um, But I'm I'm. I'm really happy that you brought that up because, you know, it makes me think about one of my personal favorite athletes, LeBron James. Ooh. And, and I think about LeBron because um, I, I, LeBron, anybody that knows much about his background knows that um, he grew up in an environment that on the surface would not seem like, a, you know, a, suited for a person destined for competitive greatness. You know, he is very open about, you know, how he grew up in a pretty much poverty-stricken environment. He had, a, you know, didn't know his father and his mother, you know, she was very young when she had him. She struggled, you know, I don't think there was much income coming into the home, if, if any. I think they were supported by government assistance. Um, he talked about not having furniture, you know, he talked about missing meals, you know, he so, talked about... So we talked about trauma, but 
also what's cousin to trauma is stress and what everything you're talking about, that's a stressful environment. It's very stressful. And, you know, oftentimes those kind of environments do lead to more traumatic experiences just because, you know, you don't have the, the safety net of a two-parent household. Maybe there wasn't as much attention that could have been paid to him. And so he was probably out there being exposed to things that, you know, negative forces of the world that, you know, many other children just don't have to face. And he was very fortunate to have had kind of mentors and, you know, folks in the community looking out, community looking out for him. But, you know, it's well documented that, you know, he did not have the nurturing and supportive environment that we would come to expect from someone who is destined for competitive greatness. Like Michael Jordan, like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Tom like Brady, Kobe Bryant, Kobe, Peyton Manning. Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady, all those guys, yeah. Tiger Woods, we mentioned him, you know, guys like that. You know, so when when the the nurturing and supportive environment is is lacking, it really is that genetic influence, you know, the nature part of the of the equation that I think can compensate. And in LeBron's case, you know, he must have had a significant degree of resilience that he was just born with um, that enabled him to withstand all those stressors and still achieve, you know, exceptional greatness. And who knows what his ceiling could have been if, if he did have that, that nurturing and support. I think about, and this may be actually what, you, actually what you're going to say, but you know, I think about LeBron and, and how great he is and, and how the times that, that he has failed, you know, the times that he hasn't achieved the, the greatness that we have all come to expect based on his level of talent, you know, it, it's, it seems that he has um, had to, to battle with anxiety and battle with a lack of confidence. Insecurity. And insecurity, exactly. And I wonder to what extent that nurturing and supportive environment that he lacked, I wonder to what extent that played a role. Got in his way of developing a strong sense of self. Yeah. So I think we, we kind of have a little bit differing opinions on him. I, I think when we talked earlier about the main things that create competitive greatness, talent and skill, um, I think that was a huge protective factor for LeBron. He obviously... Uh, I don't know. It was probably before high school when he was in the news. I don't know when he was. He was on Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. I think at sixteen, talent like we've never ever seen before in any sport, and that had to be extremely protective. Once his community found out how much of a talent he was in basketball and in sports, then that was a protective factor for him, because then he's getting bolstered up by his community. Mm-hmm. He's getting bolstered up nationwide, and that's a clear path to success right there. So I think that was extremely protective for him to develop into who he is today was that extreme raw size and talent. Like we've never seen anyone six, eight, 200 and what, 30 pounds and can probably run a four, four and has probably a 40 inch vertical. It just is insane. It's insane, right? Mm -hmm. His physical abilities are absolutely amazing out of this world. And yeah. then you you talk about the other two things, which is competitive drive. And when you come from a background like that, that can actually add to your competitive drive because you're fighting for something more than yourself. And I think yeah, initially that yeah. can be really helpful. Like he's fighting to get not only himself, but his family, his his mom out of the his situation. Town, Akron, his Ohio. town, yeah. He wanted yeah. to put his town on the map. We hear yeah. this with so many guys. And I think that can ultimately give you that kind of motivation, at least early on. And then that last part is that sense of self, that confidence. And I think that that may be the one area where she's definitely grown in, and he portrays that. And I think the the general population sees him as someone who's confident. But if you take a look at his social media a little bit, mm-hmm. he posts a lot <laughs> of his own highlights. Yeah. A lot of hashtags, the that king, good old I am the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> and... It's almost like he's trying to convince other people because I think he's still trying to convince himself. Yeah, he did say that he he believes he's the best all time. I don't think Le- Michael Jordan ever said that. He said that after he beat the Warriors, which is a great performance, obviously. But you don't have to say that. 
Yeah. As one of the greats. Yeah, and there's definitely been times where he's been uh, criticized for displacing blame mm-hmm. for you know the team's losing or the, you know, the, the, the behavior in the finals. There's not a lot of people talk about last year when, yeah. uh, admittedly, J.R. Smith made one of the biggest mistakes you can do. It was, it was still a tie game. They were in the game, and yeah. they have a timeout, and he's sitting yeah. by himself pouting. Yeah, that's those things are a little concerning. Um, but it, you know, but it it does speak to what we talked about earlier. You know, um, it it really it's a balance of forces. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, it, in addition to having these resilient genes and these great competitive talented genes you also have to have it's 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 essential yeah to have a nurturing and supportive environment Mm -hmm. to help those genes thrive and then another trait i don't he's definitely not a doesn't have the psychopath traits that we think maybe kobe or michael jordan had as one of them is you have that kind of linear focus you don't care about you have no empathy you don't care about social norms but you can tell lebron cares Oh, LeBron, absolutely. if you if you're gonna rate him as a person, he may be an overall better person. But we're not rating people as people as people. We're talking about competitive greatness within basketball. But he is his pursuits outside of basketball are amazing right now. He's got the I Promise Institute or school for low income students. He's got a TV show on HBO called The Shop. He's got a TV show on ESPN Plus called More Than an Athlete. Yeah. That's right. But he's got this empire now. He br- he brought Supposed all to be doing Space Jam. Yeah, I guess. He, he, yeah, yeah, Space Jam. He brought yeah. all his whole group, as all his friends, his yeah. his, his uh, agent just had his own features on the cover. Of SI, his Mav Carter, one of his friends, is his like manager and runs that show. He is bringing up all his friends because he's very empathetic. He cares. He has that school. Um, he does all these things in the community. He has all these focuses outside of basketball. Yeah, which shows me that he defines himself as more than just a basketball player. Just like a show, it's more than an athlete, and that's a great thing to not tie yourself into just being an athlete because you're setting yourself up for failure when eventually you have to retire. Your career ends, um, but when you're comparing him to the other people in the 99.9 percentile, you just when you have those other options and you're comparing to Kobe Bryant, and Michael Jordan, yeah, maybe you don't have as much competitive greatness or drive and then maybe you you think lebron maybe he saw the writing on the wall he saw that he wasn't going to get to those seven championships that he shouted out in miami and he wasn't going to match mj title for title so he thought to himself how can i be the best person i can be how can i get the most admiration if i'm not going to be the best basketball player of all time maybe i'll just be the best person best lebron and i'll do things outside off the basketball court so i I think where you and i might disagree a little bit on, on on this topic is that I recognize that the sociopathic traits is certainly a part of being the best, you know, a part of that competitive greatness. That killer this, instinct. The, the, yeah, that killer instinct. But I, I don't think it's the only way, you know, I think that there are different types of, of personalities, other types of personalities, I should say, that can also be, be great. And here's the thing. So guys like MJ and Kobe and other guys you mentioned, like Tiger Woods, like one thing that they all have in common is that they basically are great at, in the case of Jordan and and Kobe, taking the team, putting the team on their backs, right, and just riding the team to victory. Right. Yeah. Like uh, Tom Brady to that as right. well. Tom Brady, you know, they just it's on them because of the traits that we mentioned are both willing and able to take on that pressure and get across the finish line. Right. It's just a unique set of, you know, it's just a unique characteristic. They're confident and they're competitive to a fault where they don't give a fuck about anyone else but right. themselves. About it's, but it's about them. You yes. know, and and everything we talked about, it comes back to them being the central focus. Mm-hmm. But there's another type of competitive greatness spirit that I think also works, especially for team sports, which are guys that can make other people better, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're able to elevate the the play of the other guys around you on your team, then you know the you know, the team benefits too. Absolutely. So what what is that like? You're not. A, you're the best player. And let's take basketball. It's an easy example. You you take all the attention from the opposing team. Yeah. Their best defenders on you. Maybe they're going to double team you, like Kawhi Leonard was double right. teamed. I can't believe we haven't talked about him. 
wow, he's he's a legend right now. And then so you take the other team's focus, and then you also physically know your teammates well. As a great player, you know where you want to get your teammates' shots. You know their tendencies. You know their personalities. You know how to work with them best. Um, So you have all that. But also, your teammates are going to physically have more space, obviously, because the team's focusing their defense on the the best player. But then also psychologically, mentally, they're going to get in that groove. Mm -hmm. There's something about knowing that you're playing with a stone-cold killer that is freeing for these other players. And we, yeah, we kind of saw just, with yeah. I think we saw that with Toronto this year. Yeah. And Kawhi Leonard. Like yeah. through that Philadelphia series, I think specifically game seven against the Philly, where no one else did anything but Kawhi after that game. I mean, granted they lost the first two in Milwaukee, but they won the rest after that. The other team, like Kyle Lowry, where we were clowning on him pretty much for years about his inconsistent play. And oh, he came up big in the finals. Siakam went empty a few times. Big in the finals, and yeah. Where, where was Ibaka? Where was where was Gasol? And Van Fleet comes like all these guys come out of nowhere and have pretty damn good mm-hmm. play out of their asses essentially. Oh yeah, no, all all of they, them played at the highest level. And of, I think for them, we for would all careers, say that Kawhi yeah. Leonard raised everyone else's play. Everyone else was playing their best when it was needed. So at that, he made yeah. everyone else competitively great. And I and I think that is that that ability is what makes LeBron James so great and why he is still on that level of competitive greatness in spite of what he lacks uh, in terms of confidence yeah. in terms of you know perhaps that killer instinct. I think it does kind of even out because of his supreme and elite ability, mm-hmm. athletic ability, That's and right. talent. That's right, and he is. Very, very much driven to win. He, he is. Well, the, is he still though? I think he's kind of settling at this point. We'll see. We'll they see. got Anthony Davis. We'll see. We we'll we see. shall see. He just needs to get in the playoffs, and we'll see. But, but his for the last his, ten years, his finals performances. The last ten years in the year. NBA, no one's wanted to win as badly yeah. as LeBron. And you James. watch him playing the finals; he's amazing. Yeah, you can't deny that. My guy right now is Kawhi Leonard. He is no doubt he's competitively great, and you look at his personality. Yeah. He's show, rarely shows emotion. He's very businesslike, and he keeps to himself. He's he know he's not giving these guys like rah rah. Let's go out and like play like it's your last forty minutes of your life. Let's go. No, he's leading by example. He's very businesslike. He shows no emotion. I mean, we can go. We could probably do a whole podcast about LeBron. Do a whole podcast about Kawhi and their personalities and how it mm-hmm. relates to their competitive greatness, but. He's the guy, and he shares a lot of these characteristics that we were talking about. That's why I'm I'm, I'm, I'm buying all the Kawhi Leonard stock right now. I am, now. too. No, I He am might too. be out in L.A. We're going to have a fun summer. Oh, it's going to be awesome, man. Or fun uh, fall. Yeah, no, it's exciting. Got Anthony Davis coming to town. Um, Jury's still out on him. He's got all the talent in the world, too. Jury, yeah, exactly. Um, that's the thing. Very, very talented guy. The numbers speak for themselves. Um, but is it that... His talent and his ability to win has been suppressed by a small market team that's been poorly run. Yeah, I, I, I think or, so. Or, you know, is it something inside of him Yeah, that's lacking, perhaps? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. he won a national championship in college, so we, you know he can be clutch when needed yeah, at some true. of the higher, at, say, at, yeah. that, at a certain stage. Yeah. So I'm excited. We talked about all these other Mount Rushmore guys, but I think think we've milked this topic man i'm yeah, excited man. about it though it's a good topic it's a great topic and it's something we'll keep coming back to i think we should pick out some studs like we should do a lebron james podcast we yeah. should do a tom brady because these guys are complicated individuals but yeah let us know we're gonna have some we want feedback from you guys at some point so oh we would love feedback yeah and we could get a, we should get a coach on someday to talk about this stuff too because it relates like how do you get the most out of your players mm-hmm like how do you elevate them? Oh yeah, how about a coach great? and a GM? You know, yeah. a GM to kind of how do you scout these guys? Exactly. Like, what are you looking for? Yeah, in, we, I think we might be able to help out with regards to that. At least give like these are risk factors. Yep. Right here, and this is this maybe this person's going to be more prone to being resilient, and this one's going to be less resilient based mm-hmm. off these behaviors, based off this background. Yeah. And, and it's not even so much about like whether you know you, you, you pick up a guy up or not. It could really be about like just putting them in the right place, in the right position on the team 
for success, you know? Oh, yeah, some getting guys, them connected to the right yeah, you, part, well, coaching you know, staff, having well, someone like some us guys on staff. are built to be number one guys. Some, some people are built to be number twos. Some people are built to be role players. Some guys are better off sixth men, you know, yeah. and stuff like that. I think the bold, the, the big time is like, all right, find me a number one guy that can lead my team to a championship. Yeah, and in any sport, find me a quarterback. Like, all right, let's let's end this, man. Uh, let's end the stigma. And let's continue the conversation. Yes. <laughs>